Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Telehealth and Medicine Today Journal Series podcast. Um, I'm Marcus Osborne, um, longtime executive in healthcare. I spent 15 years at Walmart but, and uh, helping lead omnichannel efforts, particularly oper uh, opportunities in the virtual care space. And I'm excited today about uh, the topic that we have, which is international trends in virtual care. Um, and we have three great guests on the podcast. And what I'm actually going to ask them to do is just uh, introduce themselves, talk a little bit about their background in, in virtual care. So maybe, Adam, I'll kick it over to you. Thanks, Marcus. Um, hello, everyone. My name is Adam. Um, I'm a health informatician. and I've been dealing with digital health transformation projects, um, mostly in the Asia-Pacific region and the Middle East. And what I'm doing right now is I'm running the Smart Health Leadership Center over at the National University of Singapore, uh, where the primary responsibility is to help um, the nation, in this case, Singapore, uh, in their digital health transformation journey. Um, so that's what I do at the moment. Yep. Wonderful. Liz. Thank you, Marcus. Um, real pleasure to be here with you all. Uh, my name is Liz Ashall-Payne. I'm the founding chief exec at Orca. Orca started its work about seven years ago here in the UK. Um, we now work internationally, predominantly across Europe, North America and Australasia. And our big mission is to improve lives through digital health to achieve sustainable healthcare for everybody. And anybody who's heard about Orca will know that one of the core things that we do in order to achieve that is evaluate and assess digital health technologies for quality and compliance, but also for relevance to the people we then look to distribute technologies to. And the distribution channels are really important um, as our work. So of course, evaluating and re-evaluating is critical, but then distributing technologies through to citizens and also through to healthcare systems who ultimately prescribe and recommend technologies to their patients at point of need. So I'm really delighted to be here and looking forward to the conversation. Wonderful. And finally, Jefferson. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for inviting me to participate in these podcasts for telehealth and medicine today. I'm a neurologist. I'm from Brazil. I'm the regional editor for Latin America for Telehealth and Medicine Today. And I'm also the director of the education program of the International Society for Telemedicine and eHealth. We are based in Switzerland. And uh, since 2005, I'm involved in projects in telemedicine, telehealth, and in the last years, the broad term of digital health. To be nice to talk with you today. Well, it's, uh, it's a real honor to have all three of you here. And, and maybe I'll start then with this kind of first question, because we I think you uh, even started to hear a little bit about it in the intros. Um, as you think about the, the markets that you live and work, um, I'm interested how virtual care has evolved and particularly where are you seeing virtual care provide the greatest value and impact in, in in your communities from a health perspective, and maybe I'll start with Liz with you on that one. Yeah, of course. Um, so because we have distribution channels, which is predominantly system facing digital health libraries and health and care facing digital health formularies, we've been able to track 
changes over recent years. And of course, we can't answer this question without relating it to the response that was required with the pandemic. And one of the things that we absolutely saw was a significant rise in both people using digital health um, to support themselves, but also in healthcare professionals recommending and prescribing technologies to their patients. So from a quantum perspective, 25% more people went to proactively use technology. And we saw a 6,000% increase in the number of technologies being used by health and care professionals and being recommended to their patients. And that's because we were obviously having to think about things differently, think about how we could stay safe by not engaging and by socially distancing. But I think what that really did was then open up an opportunity that's been there for a long time, but really start that journey of change. Now, when we think about the clinical areas, um, we've seen a shift again over the years. So if you think when the pandemic first started, of course, people who lived with um, lung-based disease um, or requirements like asthma, COPD, et cetera, they were wanting to look after their long-term condition because they knew that they would be detrimentally affected should they contract the virus. As we went further through the pandemic period, we started to see a significant rise in people looking to either lose weight or manage diabetes. And that was because the research that was then coming out at that time was saying that people who had diabetes or, or who were um, obese were going to struggle again more with the virus. As we moved into the second year, massive increase around mental health. Um, and that has not stopped. Um, people looking to use mental health technologies. Um, and of course, as we've um, come out of the pandemic, we've seen massive waiting lists. So we're now seeing um, people being recommended technologies who are waiting for elective recovery care. Um, but the mental health agenda has continued. That's great. Hey, Jefferson, interested, same, same question to you. How are you seeing it evolving and what are the, what are the kind of best use cases? Yes, well, in Latin America, as in other regions, uh, the pandemic brought an exponential increase in the use of telehealth or future care, but also in other uh, aspects as well, uh, digital solutions to come close to the patient, bring doctors close to the patients and vice versa. And uh, the several actors of the digital health uh, ecosystem started to play a stronger role uh, health plans, health insurance, uh, hostels, hostel chains, uh, health techs uh, grow in a number that uh, was not seen before. Investors were putting money on, on that. So there was this, there is this uh, great increase. Uh, in a country as in Brazil, where I live, uh, we are not allowed as physicians to do teleconsultations direct to patients before the pandemic. We are late on that. But then with the pandemic, a new law um, was uh, uh, published. And then uh, nowadays we have thousands of daily uh, consultations in Brazil. And the same has happened in, in other countries in, in Latin America as well. And uh, as for the second aspect of your question, I think that uh, what is growing and is needed to grow more is uh, virtual care in primary care. This is one of the main areas in where most of the health problems of the patients or of the people can be solved, avoiding uh, going to emergencies or going to third uh, care uh, 
organizations, hostels for simple things that could be solved. And uh, so this is something that is very important uh, to grow, still needs a long, uh, to grow a lot in, in Latin America and in Brazil as well. And uh, so not only for the private sector, but mainly for the public sector. So this is something that is happening and uh, with evolution and enough the experience of the benefits and how patients and doctors are progressively uh, now uh, starting to use uh, telehealth. Uh, this is something that we grow and, and will bring many benefits, not only for the citizen, but for the health systems as well. Right. And finally, Adam. Yeah, so I'm just going to concentrate on the Asia-Pacific region. Um, so you guys might be aware it's a very diverse region. Um, and prior to the pandemic, definitely there have been numerous efforts to implement uh, telehealth and telemedicine in general, especially for countries with huge geographical um, region and disparity, like the Philippines, where there's thousands of islands, um, Indonesia, um, um, Thailand, uh, even China, uh, even though they have very advanced equipment, there's always a common uh, factor, not enough healthcare professionals. Um, and even if you do train enough, none of them want to work in rural areas. Uh, they want to work in the cities because of family, etc., etc. And there's the other side of the spectrum. This is before the pandemic, uh, where certain countries, uh, we try telemedicine, but it's not successful. So case in point, it was actually illegal in South Korea um, to have telemedicine uh, services. So you, you, you'd be amazed because there are lots of technology companies uh, that were peddling um, telemedicine solutions from Korea, but within that country, it was illegal. And the main barrier was actually the medical doctors. They were banding together and saying that, nope, we simply do not endorse this. And overall, where I'm based in Singapore, uh, we tried in various flavors. So there are specialty telehealth and telemedicine services where we outsource radiology uh, diagnosis uh, because it's simply not enough to go around in the island. So that was successful. We've done some tele rehab, but you see it's really towards the acute care setting. Um, it's not that the primary care settings, we don't afford it. Uh, there was two major barriers before the pandemic. Number one, uh, Singapore is a very, very, very small island. For most of us, if you go down to where we're staying, to, you go down to the block, there's one or two GP clinics around. This is the norm. There are GP clinics literally everywhere. It's so convenient. You, you, you don't have to wait. You don't have a long waiting time. You have a long waiting time at the acute services, not the primary care services. Number two, there was no reimbursement. So companies were not paying for it. The government was saying that, well, no, not really, because I'm giving you um, great face-to-face -face services. Then came COVID. And suddenly, uh, you see a similar attitude across the world, same in Asia Pacific. Everybody loves um, telemedicine, telehealth services. In fact, I get quizzed um, very frequently these days on two things. Number one, they were so amused about my job. I told them I've been working in this field for 20 years. It became popular um, because of COVID. The second thing that amuses me was say, the, the people come up to me and say, you know, there's this great thing called telehealth, telemedicine. It's, it's the greatest thing ever. And I kept reminding them that nothing changed from a technology perspective. Mm -hmm. It's the policy that has changed. It's reimbursement that has changed. So this really echo what um, Jefferson and Liz has uh, talked about uh, as well. I see we're seeing common trends. 
So yeah, so it's a huge uptake now. Everyone's talking about it. Um, governments that I know across this region wants to invest more money on it because it makes sense. It makes good sense. It should have been done like 20 years ago, but hey. Um, but yeah, this is what's going on in uh, Asia Pacific. Right. And and Adam, you did you started to kind of go where and where I want to go in the second question, which is you know, there I think there are a lot of people who you know, we I think we all agree that that virtual care solutions have the ability to deliver real impact at scale and reach, you know, reach people that maybe couldn't be reached uh, by the traditional system in an effective way. But but there are also challenges um, that we've that we've seen uh, to expansion of virtual care. Um, I, I'd just be kind of interested from from each of your perspective. What what do you think is the greatest challenge or challenges um, to 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 further expansion and that are hindering the uh, our ability to to have have virtual care have impact at scale? And maybe maybe Jefferson, I'll start with you if, if that's okay. Yeah, okay, that's fine. Thank you. Uh, well, uh, there are several challenges, but I'll pick up some of them. And as we consider uh, virtual care within the digital health, uh, you no know, broad sense, I think one of the main challenges is the digital health transformation culture. You now there is still uh, things to be done in terms of uh, who, those who take decisions, who make policies, and so on, to understand uh, what is needed and how to do it. So I think this is one of the aspects. The second aspect I would call is the financial sustainability. So who pays for what? And there is also this challenge that uh, you know you have you need to have uh, business models that will be different for different uh, solutions that can be presented. But it is is key if you're going to uh, develop you no know, patient monitoring. Uh, at their home, who's going to pay for that and how they're going to pay it. Uh, so this is things, there are some things that are very important. The other one is um, capacity building. I'm from the academic world, so this is always one of our uh, interests and worries as well. How, how the health professionals, how physicians uh, learn and know how to use uh, not only the new techno technologies, because uh, I, I usually say that uh, telemedicine, telehealth, and they are not tools. Tools are uh, hardware, software, the internet. Telemedicine, telehealth, or virtual care are methods of taking care of people. And as such, they need to be learned how to bring confidence to your patient through a virtual platform, how to communicate with them, what are the legislation regulations. So many things that should be done. So I think capacity building is a very important aspect to, uh, to take into account. So these are challenges that uh, we will have to face and uh, to overcome with time. Adam, you, you mentioned a few challenges earlier. Is there, is there one that maybe stands out? Um, actually, I totally agree and echo what Jefferson say. Uh, that's one thing that I realized that was interesting as well. Um, so I have people coming to me and saying that we can now telehealth everything. Um, we can't. <laughs> uh, so there are a lot of um 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 different um services that we can and provision of services. So um, similarly to uh, Brazil before the pandemic, um, uh, physicians should not use telehealth as the first contact. So there must be a first uh, assessment and charge. Now we actually changed the policy. Uh, 
Mm. Um, so, so, so a lot of people before the pandemic would say that this is medical. This, there's no arguments. There's no room for negotiation. And and you know they really just I won't say flip on an instance, but um, um, they look at reality and say this actually makes sense. Um, but there are some aspects of things that that's a little bit more difficult. So we are talking about hospital at home uh, as a national initiative down here. Um, and people have this conception of what constitutes a hospital. Um, so there are some services that can be done, um, some that's simply not um, not not possible, especially, let's say, nursing. Um, so, so some people lump up these services and says, hey, we're going to have telehealth for nursing services. Um, in theory, we can, but there's a lack of manpower. Again, what right. um, Jefferson has uh, has mentioned. So yeah, there, there are limitations. Yeah. Great. And maybe, maybe Liz, uh, any, any other challenges that, that you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, I, I can, again, completely agree with what's already been said. And I bulk it into four key areas. The first being awareness is low and awareness amongst our healthcare professional communities low because we're not trained in this stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm clinical by background. Um, if I do my training again tomorrow, it's almost identical to 20 years ago. So the education piece is really important. The second bucket is then access. So um, if I'm trained in knowing about the world of drugs that I'm going to prescribe to my patients, I then have access to a drug formulary, which I can then check drugs around. Where's the, where's the drug formula for digital health? The third challenge is then trust, regulations. How do we know what's compliant, what's quality? And the fourth is around governance and reimbursement. So the governance is ongoing monitoring, ongoing quality compliance, and also reimbursement, because um, otherwise where we end up is we end up creating um, inequalities, um, which is already happening. Um, so I think that there's some unintended consequences by not dealing with these barriers. So let me then kind of pivot. Um, I think virtual care, you know, there's, there's, a lot of use cases that uh, I that have popped up that that I think we've all found exciting. Liz, you mentioned in your intro uh, uh, some of the behavioral health, mental health opportunities and uh, groups that have arisen um, in the virtual care space, and and how I think uh, I know that has been one of the more interesting areas to watch develop um, uh, because of its ability to reach people in an effective way. Uh, so, so there's been a lot of use cases that, that have gotten that we've been uh, I've been surprised and excited by in the virtual care space. I wonder, as you look forward and into the future, is there is there one virtual care kind of use case that gets you the most excited and, 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 and why? Um, maybe, Adam, I'll uh, start with you on that one. Oh, that is a very good question. Um, I, I think the I'm public health trained, so I'm definitely going to gun for a preventive care. And we have initiatives in Singapore uh, that are really looking at how to do so, not just primary care, but prevention all the way up um, using telemedicine, some behavior um, changes. Um, so I'm actually really, really excited to to look at that aspect. And I'm, I'm slowly coming to realize that don't we all know that policy plays a huge part, policy and financing. And as I get deeper into this, I, I come to realize that how crucial and important, I, I cannot emphasize it enough. You know, I, I knew it was important. 
I knew it was very very important. It still it still it still surprises me um how crucial it is. Yeah, so mm-hmm. definitely about preventive care. Yeah, that's great. Liz, what about you? So um, I'm I'm going to cheat and say two areas. Okay. Um, and it's a journey. So um, Adam, as you said, I bulk those technologies in low complexity, high volume technologies. So these are things that are quite low risk. Um, but we can have a huge impact for many, many people. And I think that's where we need to really dive in because it's low risk. Um, we And actually, we just did a piece of research, which I'm happy to share, um, which showed that using digital technologies in the prevention of type 2 diabetes was more effective than metformin. So why are we not just doing that now? We've got the research that says that. So that's the low complexity, high volume. I think where we really need to start thinking about is high complexity, low volume technologies. So these would be pathway replacement technologies. So think, you know, small checkers. How can we help somebody who's waiting for a dermatology appointment to check a mold, see if it's cancerous, use a mold checker for us to be able to diagnose? And there are so many um, opportunities, ophthalmology, et cetera. And so that's where we need to shift to. But those technologies are obviously higher risk. And so our workforce is not necessarily ready for that, but that's where we probably need to shift to. Finally, Jefferson. Yes. Uh, well, uh, what excites me more is uh, taking care of the patient at his or her home. I think this is something that uh, I know to be taking care in the comfort and on the safety of one's home is something that is growing grew more. The pandemic brought this experience and now we have many things that are brought to our home. Oh, they were brought before food, clothes and so on, and then health. And so we, with that way, we can decrease the amount of people going to clinics or to hostels unnecessarily. And this also gives the opportunity for the continuity of care. You know, we still work, uh, we still do care in silos. And uh, as was mentioned before, the journey and the prevention, the continuity of care that can be, where digital tools can be used uh, at several touch points. And then you can have also the uh, face-to-face also consultation, but it goes from promotion of health from prevention, primary, secondary for diagnosis, for treatment. Sometimes you'll need to do diagnosis at a hospital and treatment as well. Then you can go to, a, let's say, a transition hostel, then you go to your home. So as many opportunities that we have that we could treat patients at home, you get a, you're gonna have better results. And there is a lot of evidence coming out of this. And I think this is one, very uh, important points that we have to take into account. What is the evidence that you get? Not only the uh, scientific evidence from uh, publications and trials and so on, but also from data of the real world. So this is one component that uh, every physician, every health professional should go is to read, such as in telehealth and medicine today, what's there, what's the experience that has been brought so we can then uh, try to focus on those that are, are more prone uh, to help people in that. So uh, taking care of patients at home, I think this is going to be not only the future, but it's starting now very, very wisely. That's good. Well, so my, my last question then is, you know, and, we, and we've talked a lot about your each of your experiences, you know, in Southeast Asia and Western Europe and South America. Uh, 
and and about you know where about the development of virtual care solutions in 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 the markets where you live i'm just interested you know is there a is there a key learning or two that you have uh around how you've seen things develop that might you know inform the development of virtual care solutions in in other places other markets around the world meaning if you could if you could go and you know, based on your own experience, give advice to another country who who is another market that is is starting their own kind of virtual care journey. Is there is there is there a learning or piece of advice that you would uh, share? And maybe I'll start with uh, uh, Liz. Yeah, I think I mean there's definitely a few um, pieces of learning that I would um, be keen to share. The first is. Um, what does good look like for you in your country or your jurisdiction? How can you learn from international work? So, um, of course, there are some regulatory differences. There are some different um, requirements for compliance. But you can learn from international standards and pieces of work and frameworks that have been delivered. So, for example, here in the NHS, we have something called a DTAC. In Germany, there's a DIGA. In New Zealand, there's a DMAP and so on and so forth. Um, so how can we learn from that to set the rules for market entry? And that's really important because um, industry wants to work where the market is open. And so if you set the rules, people will start to adhere to them. So that's the first thing. The next thing is you then need to think about how are you going to distribute these technologies and who are you going to distribute them to? And that starts with being clear about the problem you're trying to solve. So you're trying to solve a problem around mental health, you're trying to solve problem around obesity, what is, what's the problem? And start small, don't start with everything. And then think about a distribution channel, how are you going to distribute that to people? And then the third thing that you need to think about is activation. And activation is different to distribution because distribution will hit people who are activated. Mm. People who aren't activated need activating and that's where our healthcare systems and providers come in. Our healthcare professionals particularly can activate um, patients to use technologies by recommending or prescribing but of course part of the activation is sustainability and reimbursement so those are the three chunks. That's great. Uh, Jefferson to, to you. Yes well uh, we have this you know academic uh, way of thinking and I just uh, perhaps one suggestion that I would give is to build up a framework uh, for implementing virtual care and it starts with mindsets, you know, trying to change the culture of those who can, uh, you know, make decisions on that. Learn from others. That can be done from the literature, but also visiting place and knowing the daily work, how it's done in practice. Sometimes it's not written in the papers. You have to go there and see the challenges, the challenges that are daily challenges, and how they have overcome. What were the mistakes? What were the success? Then you need to have strategy. You need to have to plan. All your planning is, is very important. Good management for that. Qualified professionals. So comes again, education for that. And then you also have to discuss the business model and how reimbursement will be done. And is also the involvement of uh, all the teams that will be involved uh, or that will be uh, related to this uh, propose of this uh, virtual care solution or program or project, and then involve the users as well. I think this is a very simple framework that could be expanded, but I think in general, this is a starting path to thinking, implementing uh, virtual care in different 
services in different uh, cities and so on. Right. And Adam, I'll give you the final word. Well, the beauty of going last is that, number one, detail to what um, both of them have said, but I'd like to emphasize just one more point. Definitely agree that um, having a framework and starting small, because a lot of times people overanalyze the situation. Uh, you have to start and then figure out what works for you in your local setting, uh, but you need to really start. Um, and of course, taking into consideration the local infrastructure. Uh, I've seen some places where you, know, you don't really have um, internet access, but you know what? Mobile phone services is really available. So, you know, there's always an alternative, but you have to start. And, and then you figure out how to uh, improvise and pivot as you go along. Yeah. That's great. Well, uh, Adam, Liz, and Jefferson, I want to thank you all uh, for taking the time to chat with us about it. I think it's what's happening around the globe in, in virtual care is really compelling. The opportunities are compelling, but I think you all actually said it at some point in your talks, which is, this is all, this is all about trying to better serve people, people who need care. They need more affordable, more accessible, simpler. I think, uh, uh, Adam, you, you were kind of use that term care. And so I thank you for what you're doing. And again, thank you for your time today. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.